listening to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Tomorrow, two state Senate committees will hear a bill to provide additional funding for field operations and additional field staff for Kaho'olawe Island Reserve Commission. The KROC was established in 1994 to restore the island after years of bombing by the U.S. Navy. The commission also monitors the surrounding waters, which is a protected marine reserve. The conversations Russell Subiono talked with KIRC Executive Director Mike Naho'opi'i uh, Mike this morning to see how the island was impacted by the economic fallout of the pandemic. Ko'olave doesn't have any full-time residents, but it does have staff and volunteers that visit the island regularly and work on the restoration. How was that impacted by the pandemic? Were trips to the island scaled back or did the isolation allow for work to continue? Well, it was kind of a unique situation because we had just come off in February 2020. We had that major fire that burned about a third of the island. It's a huge wildfire that started off on the west side of the island, burned across the island, about one third of it. As we were trying to recover from that, later in the year, we started hitting the first portions of the pandemic. And then, you know, we had to shut down. We shut down for a period of a few months until the CDC sent out some guidelines on how to start bringing things back up again. So we really didn't have volunteers until August of 2020. We were able to bring volunteers back, test up some new social distancing rules, you know, because we also provide birthing and meals out there. So we have to figure out how we're going to house people safely, how we're going to feed everybody safely. So we worked all those out in August, September. We brought our first volunteer group back out to the island. We also, part of the things we had to do is uh, we needed more space to separate people as they stay on the island. So we had to cut back the number of volunteers, but, you know, we were able to get a lot of work done. So we've been back out there since September about uh, that time to keep planting and keep doing projects on the island. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. And in terms of funding, Hawaii's economy took a big hit in 2020 because of the pandemic and the shutdown. Did a dip in tax revenue impact funding you received from the state for the island? Oh, yeah, it was it was a very difficult time for us because one of the things that the forecast was such a dire forecast of revenue for the state excise tax and, and also for income tax that the state abolished many vacant or a lot of positions. So we actually lost two positions as part of the state's cutbacks and a large chunk of our funding, our general funds. So one of the good things is that now that the forecast is looking better, this year's governor's budget has added back in at least one of the positions and that funding that was eliminated. That's good yeah. to hear. What kind of adaptations did the commission have to make during the pandemic to continue services and continue its mission? Well, the biggest one was how do we, we had to figure out how can we bring volunteers back to the island and ensure to the volunteers that it was safe because, you know, we're still in the a big part of the pandemic and we we're still trying to get work done out there in the island so you know we had to change a lot of things as most of the restaurants and food service industry had to do but one of the biggest ones was we had to cut back the number of people that we could bring out to the island just to keep people safe out there and we had to go look at a lot of different grants so we we cast our net as wide as we could and seeing what kind of federal funding we could find during this time period 
And so what's the current status of the projects on Ko'olawe and the long-term plans for the island? The pandemic seems like it may have kind of slowed down progress. Where do you guys stand now? Well, we're still out there restoring the island. You know, that that's our major goal is to cover the hard pan. That's our first goal. And to, you know, about 25% of the island was barren hard pan due to all those years of goat damage to the island. Our biggest goal is try to replant that, cover that with native plants, try to build infrastructure on the island so that we can support that restoration work and also try to protect the shorelines from the damages that we're seeing right now from climate change and sea level rise. So our newest area that we've been working on is hardening all the shoreline dunes with native grasses. And it seems to be working. We, we're protecting a lot of our coastal our coastline areas, sandy coastlines, by replanting them. And that seems to be our new focus. In addition to the upland plantings, we're now working on coastal plantings. I was also curious about what kind of marine debris you guys are seeing on Koholave. Well, you know, one of the interesting areas on Kaholave is uh, Kanapo Bay, which is on the eastern side of the island. And if, if you look at a map of Kaholave, you have this large bay that looks like an open mouth, and it faces directly into the prevailing trades. And we have been doing beach cleanup projects in that area for years. I mean, even back to when I was in the military in the 90s, our latest endeavors have been, you know, we, we're pulling about easily five tons of debris out of there and try to get that off the island. A lot of it is nets and just various types of plastics. And we are seeing that plastic is now breaking down and forming these like microplastic pieces that are now in the sand. So that's one of our biggest worries that we're going to have coming up. Right now, we're trying to take care of the big bulky stuff like crates, the plastic crates, plastic floats, nets, mostly nets and rope. That's the biggest things we see. Yeah, I think all the islands are seeing uh, similar debris washing up on, on their shores as well. You know, from what I can tell, the state has an unexpected surplus of funds to disperse this legislative session. What will your request for additional funding help support? So the biggest thing that we need on Kaholabe, so the, the state has given us, you know, in the last few years, they, they have given us, uh, you know, general funds. For almost close to 25 years, we lived off the remnants of a trust fund that the federal government set up as part of the cleanup. And we never got state funding until about 2016, 2017, we started to get money. What we have today is we have funding for the staff and we have an operation on Maui where, you know, we have an office and you know, we have a commission and we have our boathouse. So we have, we have money to take care of things that are happening on Maui. But the biggest thing we need is a constant funding source to support people who go to Kahoalave, especially our base camp. And that's one of our biggest expense is that we have about 28 building base camp. You know, we, we, we make power, we have solar power, battery system. We make fresh water with a desalinization plant out there. We have vehicles. So that additional funding request that we have as two separate funding bills. And we want to thank Representative Ryan Yamane and Senator Mike Gabbert for introducing those companion bills for us is to help us get a steady funding source so that we can keep the base camp operating, which supports all the people who go to Kahoolawe and supports our activities in the field. You know, the island is fairly big. People don't realize it's about 14 miles across. And our planting areas are at least 10 miles away from camp. So 
We need vehicles. We need trucks. Someone has to take care of them. Someone has to fix them. We have to bring fuel out to the island. We have to store the fuel. We have to make electricity, you know, all those things. And also, we need a couple more people in the field. We're trying to expand a little bit. We have been successful in our plantings, but it just takes a lot of bodies. So the additional staff that we're asking for are going to help guide the volunteers. And we take a lot of volunteers out there because we need a lot of hands to put plants to the ground. That was Mike Nahopi, Executive Director of the Koholave Island Reserve Commission. He was talking with HPR's Russell Subiona earlier today. We'll have a link where you can submit testimony for SB 3013 on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today has a story that raises questions about the integrity of the fire suppression system at the military's Red Hill Underground Fuel Facility. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Good to be here. Yes. So um, I know the military uh, did a data dump on Friday afternoon, and I was thinking that maybe some of these documents were from that, but uh, maybe not. Yeah, no, I found this um Navy memo on this obscure government contracting website. And basically what it says is that the fire suppression system at the Red Hill Fuel Facility has been giving the military trouble for years. In December 2019, one part of the fire suppression system, which was installed in the 80s, suffered a pump failure. Another part of the system installed in 2017 had a leak last year um, that required some repair, but the Navy apparently did not know where the leak was, according to this memo. And as of March of last year, both parts of the system, the older one and the newer one, had experienced what they called, quote, unexpected operational failure. And essentially, the system would only deploy water, not firefighting foam, on a fuel fire. So if you can think of, you know, your basic kitchen guidance, don't put water on a grease fire. That's essentially what the fire suppression system at Red Hill would do. Even today, if there was a fire, the firefighting foam has to be deployed manually by personnel working there. Well, it wasn't very reassuring because there's a line in your story that says that, you know, a scenario of a, of a, a fire um, could cause catastrophic damage to this facility. Right. Right. The Navy said, like, this is very serious. The memo was essentially um, outlining the problems in a justification for funding to fix it. Um, And they said that operating the fuel facility as is without a reliable fire protection system is not an acceptable course of action, which makes sense because, you know, this facility holds um, approximately 180 million gallons of fuel at any given time. So, you would definitely want a good firefighting system in place. Now, why this is all relevant, particularly now, of course, is that this water contamination crisis has been going on, um, at least we've known about it since November. And all of these families around Pearl Harbor got sick because they were drinking fuel out of their their drinking water. Um, And the Navy's running theory, as far as they shared with us, is that a pipeline attached to the fire suppression system, like a fire suppression drain line, released all this fuel into the water supply. And that fuel never should have been there in the first place. The Navy has said that pipeline in the fire suppression system is supposed to sit empty in normal circumstances. So this 
this memo showing all the problems leading up to this, you know, takes on new relevance. Yeah, I mean, they they can't explain, uh, you know, why that they didn't follow the proper protocols. Uh, but the the I don't know what what did the Navy say about you know our capability right now as we talk. Well, they said that the on one hand the the system is operational in their words, but like I said, they have to deploy the firefighting foam manually. So, you know, God forbid the personnel that are supposed to manually activate the firefighting foam are, are out of commission for some reason in a, in a catastrophe, as the memo uh, references. You know, it just doesn't seem like a good situation. Um, they say they're working on repairs, um, but that's been going on for, for some time. So, um, they, do, they do say the system's manned 24-7 and can be activated immediately with an established standard operating procedure. Well, I know there are multiple probes going on, different investigations, uh, and I imagine those, some of this is going to be addressed uh, once, we get, once we actually see those reports. Right. We hope so. Um, the investigation that the military did has concluded, and it's been submitted to the U.S. Pacific Fleet and the Pentagon. They did say that that it would be released to the public sometime in mid-February, and we're about there, so hopefully any day now. Um, we know that you know our congressional delegation has been pushing for the release of that, um, and Representative Kaikahele specifically has said he wants it released in full, unredacted. You know, we want 100% of the information, he says. So maybe um, that report will address some of these fire suppression issues. We'll have to see. But uh, I'll definitely be looking for it myself. Yeah, I mean, not very reassuring um, if we're if that's a high risk uh, facility for fire. But thank you so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's reality check. You can read that story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Opera Theater's The Tragedy of Carmen. In Peter Brook's 90-minute adaptation of Bizet's opera, Carmen's dark fate is elevated to an assertion of her power. February 18th and 20th at the Blaisdell, hawaiiopera.org. Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by February 25th. Support for HPR comes from Waiakea Hawaiian Volcanic Water, offering alkaline water sourced from the Keaau Aquifer on the Big Island. Learn more about subscriptions at waiakea.com. Drink the water falling from the sky, running in circles all day. Sing all night, but I'd rather catch a fly or bury myself in the mud. 
bullish about bullfrogs or squeamish about the amphibians? Well, did you know that they eat native birds and snails and maybe bigger than what you might find on the continental U.S.? These frogs have warning calls and mating calls and calls claiming their territory. Maybe you've got one in your backyard. Well, you know, apparently bullfrogs make good eating. They were brought in as a food source here in Hawaii, but how did they get here and why do we know so little about them? We get the skinny on these frogs, and yes, they are different from the regular cane toads. Here's Hawaii Pacific University researcher Heidi Beswick explaining how she got led down the bullfrog rabbit hole. So my advisor is Brendan Holland at the Hawaii Pacific University. He has a long background studying invasive herpetofauna, which is reptiles and amphibians, as well as how they affect things like our native snails. He really loves snails. So I came here and I was interested in studying pretty much any kind of reptile or amphibian. That's my area of interest. And I talked to a few people from the Department of Land and Natural Resources. They noted that not many people have been studying bullfrogs here. So there's a lot we don't know about them. Now, a lot of people confuse bullfrogs with cane toads. Cane toads are what you might find in your backyard. They're very bumpy. They have little angry faces. They're usually kind of brown in color. And they can stray far away from, like, aquatic habitat. Whereas bullfrogs are exclusively found in wetland habitat or near water. They're, they're much smoother. They're much bigger. So, yeah, a lot of people, I think, in Hawaii can't recognize them immediately. But, yeah, it's, they're a very interesting species because they're present in over 40 countries now and four different continents. They're considered one of the worst invasive species by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. They are voracious predators. They're carnivores, and they can eat anything that fits in their mouth. So they've been observed eating bats, birds, small mammals, other frogs, fish, snakes, scorpions. There's really not much limit to what they'll eat besides the size of their mouth. So, you know, so that makes them kind of a threat to a lot of native species in the areas where they invade. And then another issue with the bullfrogs is that they can lay 20,000 eggs at a time, which is a lot. So they're very reproductively successful. And here in Hawaii, it's possible that they're laying way more clutches than they would on the mainland because they don't have like a hibernation season here in Hawaii. So they could lay possibly like 60,000 eggs in a season. Wow. Yeah. And so I imagine, though, you were just out in the marshy areas, <laughs> traipsing around looking for these frogs? Yes, that's correct. So I go out at night because that's the easiest time to find them. I shine a flashlight around in the bushes, in the wetlands, and their eyes are very reflective. And so you can see two little shiny eyes in the dark, and that's the best way to catch them or to locate them. And then I just catch them with a dip net and put them to sleep. So how did these frogs get here in the first place? So they've been brought here as a food source, probably originally from California, and potentially also as biocontrol for mosquitoes. And they arrived here maybe about 120 years ago, somewhere around the turn of the century, but in the, like, 1899 or 1900. And they've just been proliferating ever since. Yes. They haven't received too much scientific attention here, so I think at a certain point people were realizing that they're already very well established and that any 
environmental impact they might have they've already had so yeah so i think because of that they haven't had as much scientific attention well so so talk about where you found them here on oahu so i've found a couple at Kauai nui marsh and then i've spent a lot of time catching them at kualoa ranch in their taro ponds that they're trying to restore and then i've also received a bunch of specimens from wildlife refuge the james campbell one it's on the north shore mm-hmm and then yeah. what, what about what about on the neighbor islands? So they're on all of the main Hawaiian islands, although I haven't had the opportunity to personally catch any on the other islands. But there are many on the big island, I know for sure, and I have a couple of specimens from Kauai. Now, I just always thought that frogs just competed for insects, you know, and that was kind of their, their bad thing. Mm-hmm. But I was just really surprised, yeah, to learn that there had been these studies where, you know, they were after our stilts and they were eating the the young birds. Yeah, a lot of people are surprised by that because, you know, you wouldn't think that a baby stilt could fit into a frog's mouth, but these frogs will go after anything. They they also try to predate on animals that are larger than them, and so sometimes they can actually die by choking on animals that are too big for them. So, yeah, they'll, they'll try to eat anything. Your research, I guess, what are you trying to learn about um, this species? Uh, I wanted to try and collect as much data from each specimen that I collect as possible because I don't know that many other people in Hawaii studying bullfrogs. So the first thing I'm I'm doing is I'm dissecting them to see what they're eating, and I think that will have some pretty interesting results. So I will also be comparing their head size relative to mainland populations to see whether their their head size is increasing, whether they're experiencing microevolution or uh, environmental plasticity that would cause them to have traits that make them more successful predators here in Hawaii. And so an increased head size would allow them to predate on higher trophic level species, which would have like maybe possibly a larger impact on Hawaii ecosystems. And it would also affect which native Hawaiian species they're competing with. So I think comparing their head size will be also pretty interesting. I've also been looking at their total body size compared to frogs on the mainland. And what I've found so far is that they do appear to be significantly bigger here in Hawaii, which could be for several different reasons. It could be because we have a longer growing season or because artificial selection, because they were brought here as a food source. So they may have just been bred to be bigger. And, you know, this would also impact what kind of prey they're eating and also what kind of native and non-native species would predate on them. And then the last thing I'm doing is I'm comparing their leg length relative to their total body size to the mainland. Because if they have longer legs here, then that's it's known as a dispersal enhancing trait, which means it's easier for them to disperse or travel long distances and establish new populations. And then lastly, I'm taking genetic samples of each frog that I collect, and I'll be creating a phylogeny, which is sort of a a genetic tree of all the different frogs for which I have samples. And the purpose of this would be to see whether they have high genetic diversity, which would increase their fitness. It would make them more able to adapt to different environments. But the interesting thing about bullfrogs is that even when they have very low genetic diversity, Let's say there's a very small population of bullfrogs that gets introduced to a new location. 
they're still extremely successful, and that's pretty surprising. And it may be one of the reasons why they're so successful as an invasive species. Now, you know, lots of people probably remember their fourth grade science experiment when you had to dissect a frog. Uh-huh. Do you remember what it was like? I don't know, if you had to get over the squeamish factor? (laughs) Well, I'll be honest, these are actually the first frogs I've ever dissected. And it was quite a learning experience for me, trying to figure out where all the organs were. And I still feel very squeamish about it. I usually gag the whole time. I wear several layers of masks so I don't have to smell anything. Do they smell? Yes. When you dissect their stomach contents and their gastrointestinal contents yeah that Ah, that part smells okay interesting interesting and then i hear you put them to sleep in a very humane manner is that right i i do the best i can you know i actually love frogs it is sad for me to have to put them to sleep but i know it's what's best for the ecosystem so i use benzocaine which is the same as oragel that you put on your gums to numb them and it puts the frogs to sleep fairly quickly. And usually I hold them, I pet them, I let them look at the stars. I'll sing a little song to them. I try to be kind to them before they pass away. Oh, you're just a kind-hearted scientist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of scientists have a lot of emotions when they're working. And I think there's this idea that scientists have to be kind of robotic and objective, but in my experience, you know, people have a lot of feelings when they're, you know, doing research like this. Well, you love what you do, and you take care, I guess, with your work. So if that means yeah. um, singing the bullfrogs to sleep, I, I guess so be it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they like it, but I do my best. That was HPU researcher Heidi Beswick talking about the invasive bullfrog as we mark Invasive Species Month. Bullfrog, sing your lonely song. If I knew the words, I'd sing along. Sitting on the edge of your song. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. The first images from a billion-dollar space telescope launched into orbit this past December are in. Astronomer Christopher Phillips, along with HPR's Dave Lawrence, are here to tell you what to expect in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can look for in our dark island skies. As usual, thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers look out for Venus in the early morning sky before sunrise, where it can be seen in the eastern sky. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so spotting faint objects in the heavens will be very challenging indeed. And it's exciting because you've got some information on uh, first stuff from the new James Webb Space Telescope. Yes, indeed. It has finally opened its eyes to the cosmos and has started producing its first images. 
While it's some way off producing usable science images, these initial calibration images will allow engineers to align the segments of the main mirror. Once fully aligned and calibrated, a new era of astronomy will begin. And tell us a little bit about what they're looking at. Well, right now, JWST is using a single bright star to calibrate its mirror and instruments. In astronomy, we call these types of stars standard stars, since they are of a known brightness. While it's not very interesting from a public perspective, standard stars are invaluable for making sure that what comes next is good quality science. So will this thing follow up, Chris, the way that Hubble had those spectacular images? Same kind of deal? It will eventually, yes. Once science is underway, JWST will no doubt be used to produce pretty-looking pictures to keep the taxpaying public happy. <laughs> but the images used by scientists will be far less impressive. For the amount of billions of dollars this thing costs, they better come up with some sort of decent-looking image, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, science images are not very pretty to look at. They're almost always monochrome, noisy, and full of groups of pixels that kind of look like stars and galaxies. <laughs> However, these simple pixels contain a wealth of information, and that is what makes JWST WST worth its weight in gold. Not pretty pictures. And uh, so when's the science phase kicking in? Well, it's going to be sometime after April once the mirrors are aligned and the instruments are cooled to operating temperatures. It may take a while, but it's totally going to be worth the wait. Looking forward to it, and I know we'll be covering it here on Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week. And you can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the offices of the Liliuo Kalani Trust, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. You know, this Saturday marks the 80th anniversary of Executive Order 9066. That is the order signed by President Roosevelt, which triggered the internment of 120,000 citizens of Japanese descent. Today, we highlight a book just published by University Press. It was written by author Tom Kaufman of To Catch Away fame, which gave us context to Hawaii's political landscape. The title of this new book is called Inclusion, How Hawaii Protected Japanese Americans from Mass Internment Transformed Itself and changed America. We talked to Kaufman as well as Barbara Tanabe, another former journalist whose family's internment experience in Seattle gives context to this time in our history. But we start with Kaufman. Well, I had done a lot of work as a political reporter uh, covering the state capitol and, you know, like the earlier years of statehood. And in the process, I became fascinated with, sort of obsessed with what were the antecedents of statehood, and particularly how was it that Hawaii got through the tremendous strain of the war, Hawaii having uh, been attacked by Japan and having a what was then a 35 to 40 percent Japanese-American, Japanese ancestry population. So slowly I began working on the question of why had Hawaii basically gotten through this crisis better than one would reasonably expect, and I would say very well, actually, because I think it did lay the basis for Hawaii statehood in contrast to the tremendous tragedy and mass injustices that occurred in the West Coast states. And so that was the the question that 
gnawed at me and drove me to begin to piece together the research base that went into this book. Yeah, because a lot of people might think, gosh, why didn't they do mass internment camps here? You know, because I think, what, like 40% of the population here was Japanese. But it was just there were too many. You just couldn't do it. Well, that's that was a standard um, thought, which I distrusted increasingly as I worked on the, the book. There were 160,000 people of Japanese ancestry at the time, and the president and the War Department were insisting basically on a mass forced evacuation. And then as the resistance to it set in from Hawaii, they began specifying numbers, and the number that they initially came up with was 100,000, at least uh, evacuate 100,000 people. So that was like, you know, two-thirds of the Hawaii Japanese population. So the United States moved about a million people through Hawaii during the war. It wasn't an impossibility to force the evacuation of all these people. So in the end, I didn't buy that theory. And Barbara, why don't you jump in here? Because your family uh, was in one of these internment camps. Well, thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Tom, for doing all the research. Because as a child, well, as children of Nisei parents, we never knew about the evacuation, the arrest, the detention, and having to uh, live in camp all those years. I did not find out until I went to college, the University of Washington, uh, and my grandfather told me about it. My father never, never mentioned it at all. So that's when, you know, Ji-chan is, is what we called our grandfather. Jichan told us, yeah, you know, it was kind of rough in camp. And then I said, what camp? And, and that's what started the whole thing. But not only did I find out about the, the fact that the entire Tanabe family, uh, which included um, three children plus my dad and my grandmother, the entire family was evacuated first to the Puyallup um, stables where they, where they kept the horses until Minidoka was ready to accept the Seattle area detainees, the Japanese Americans. Uh, there were about 10,000 of them in the area, and they were transported uh, by train to a, an area near Twin Falls, Idaho. It was called Minidoka, and they had put together um, really shacks, and, and that's where my grandparents stayed throughout the war. He worked as a cook there, but you know, the reason that they ended up in Seattle was because originally my grandfather was running a cafe in Montana um, to feed the uh, railroad gangs um, that were working on the railroads, and the cafe got torched. So they had to, they had to move to Seattle, and that's when they got caught in the net of uh, all these mass arrests. So it was a real eye-opening experience for me to find out about what had happened to to the family, and of course, you know, no one discussed it. No one talked about it. They just made the best of it, um, and they eventually resettled in 
in the Seattle area. It took them a couple of years to finally you know, get back and start all over again, but they never talked about it um, until I started to ask questions. And mind you, Catherine, this was in 1970s. In 1971, I was a rookie reporter, and I decided to do a story on what happened to the Japanese-Americans and the internment camp at Minidoka. And that was the first time a lot of these people had even talked about it. It's just, it was just really quite sad, but also inspiring to know that, you know, to this day, even though they went through this horrible, horrible experience, they consider themselves to be Americans, not just Japanese Americans. And Tom, you know, in your research and this book, you highlight a, a couple of uh, people who really had a hand in this decision, you know, to not open, you know, internment camps here or to send so many people away. There was a circle of people who began working consciously and actively on the gathering threat of war and what kind of disastrous consequences it could have for the Japanese community. And it included, prominently, it included the characters that I focused on the most were, first of all, Charles Hemingway, who was practically lifetime chairman of the Board of Regents of UH and mentor to many, many young local students who went through the university. And two of them particularly had been sort of star students one was Shigeo Yoshida, who was a star debater, a, an intellectual, a writer. And the second person was Hong Wai Ching, who was a star athlete and a, eventually a really well-known YMCA youth worker. Um, and so these two young people were mentored by uh, Hemingway, and as the war approached, uh, he called on them to get involved. And then progressively, the key people who were involved were the FBI agent, Robert Shivers, who was assigned to Hawaii, and the person he tapped into to guide him because of his you know, lack of knowledge about the Hawaii scene, a young police officer who was making a name for himself himself named Jack Burns. Right. <laughs> well, he went on to become uh, a governor here. You know, one thing that I was struck by was that, you know, these uh, key folks were on this council, kind of an informal hui, you know, advisory group that really were kind of a think tank for the powers that be that, as they were making these decisions. Well, they built, uh, you know, a circle of discussion and knowledgeability and trust among themselves in this long lead-up to the war where they anticipated the war, and they then became, in essence, the advisors to the martial law government, and they played a, a strong role in guiding the martial law government away from, uh, you know, from the mentality of, you know, cracking down and instead involving the Japanese community in the war effort. And very quickly, that question of involvement 
became whether Japanese Americans would serve in the military, from which they had been completely banned at that point. And Barbara, as you read this book, what were you struck by, you know, given your family's experience? Well, first of all, it was just so different from what my father and my grandfather explained to me happened on the mainland. There was no group. There, there, was, there were very, very few people that spoke out in defense of the, the Japanese. And it wasn't until much later that I learned that the University of Washington president and many faculty members tried to stop the evacuation. They met with the U.S. Army. Uh, but they were powerless because the politicians uniformly wanted the, all the Japanese arrested. And I remember one politician who did not. He, he was the mayor of Tacoma, Harry Kane. And I interviewed him back in 1971. And at that time, Harry said to me, the reason why the Japanese were all arrested is because of the competition by other farmers who wanted to take over the very successful truck farms run by the Japanese Americans. And, and these Japanese farmers were the ones that really got high place market started in Seattle, Washington. So, you know, there was this organized and very uh, strong opposition on the mainland. But as I was reading Tom's book, I was so impressed with the, the vision of uh, Mr. Yoshida and Hongwai uh, Ching and other young people. They were in their 30s. And they had this vision of uh, a democratic Hawaii where all the races were able to participate in society. And I'm thinking, wow, they were, they were brave. They were leaders, really inspiring leaders. And they had this tremendous vision. And because of their commitment, they were able to pull off what nobody would envision could happen on the mainland. So I was just really quite impressed with the generation of leaders, young leaders that Hawaii had and what was lacking on the mainland. If you're just joining us, that was Barbara Tanabe talking about her family's perspective about mass internment of citizens of Japanese-American descent on the mainland. We will continue our conversation with Tanabe and author Tom Kaufman after this short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for Master of Science programs is February 16th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. We're going to take a look at corporate monopolies. They dominate many industries, including beef. So you have cattle ranchers going broke while consumers are paying all-time record prices for beef. It's failed consumers on one end of the supply chain, and it's failed the American family farmer and rancher on the other. More Than Money, a special series. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Welcome back. Let's continue our conversation with Tom Kaufman and Barbara Tanabe. We're talking about Kaufman's new book, Inclusion, How Hawaii Protected Japanese Americans from Mass Internment, Transformed Itself, and Changed America. Tom, this Council for Interracial Unity, you know, was so 
instrumental in setting Hawaii on this path, developing into, you know, where we are today. Yes. It evolved into uh, this advisory group, the morale section of the martial law government. And through that agency, the key people involved, basically, above all, Hung Wai Ching and Yoshida and increasingly John Burns, set out to organize, you know, mobilization groups, mutual support groups in every ethnic group in every island. And to a great extent, they achieved this goal. And it was from that base that the 442nd, the 100th Battalion, and then the 442nd were organized. But it was through those networks that Tens of thousands of people were involved in some way in the war effort, you know, by giving blood, buying bonds, getting out and working in uh, what was called Kiavi Corps, which was basically do the brutal work of clearing out brush and Kiavi along the beaches so that uh, the beaches would be more difficult for the Japanese to invade were they to try that. It was that kind of involvement that raised people's spirits, gave them a sense of purpose, and rescued people from, um, you know, what Ching and Yoshida feared would be a downward spiral of disillusionment, despair, and then disloyalty to the United States. So basically, they worked at strategized and led a process of building loyalty and involvement. And this crucially infected the United States Army, the FBI, eventually the War Department, and key people in the United States government. So it led to this turnaround. Yeah, I mean, when you think of what it did, the trajectory that that, uh, was set by, you know, these events, it, it, it is it is amazing, you know, because you've done, you know, so much research and you've documented it. And I I go back to the beginning of your book where you talk about, you know, you credit folks over at the University of Hawaii. They were moving things around, renovating, and, you know, they came across a couple of shoeboxes, right, with this priceless material that, you know, then you were able to uh, delve into. I love that story. Yeah, good. That was... I'd been work. I'd worked on documentary film projects, much more superficially dealing with the subject. And I was at the archives and manuscripts at Hamilton Library one day, and the archivist said, "We just completed a move from into our new wing, and as we're moving all this material, we saw these three boxes of archival material in you know great disrepair, but there they were." And I leafed through them, and they looked like they. So, so the archivist said, "Time. They look sort of like the subject you're interested in. Would you like to look at them?" And as I devoured them, I realized they were the the lost archive of the morale section. I'd actually spent a fair amount of time in Washington D.C. in the National Archives looking for them. Uh thinking they would have been archived through the military government. They never were. These were like the personal archives. 
that basically Shigeo Yoshida stowed away. And it was an enormous, uh, enormous amount of new historical information in the process. Well, Barbara, what, what did you think when, when you read that? Because I, I just immediately, you know, my heart just leapt. It was like, oh, my gosh, I can just see. I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, as reporters, I mean, good heavens. First of all, I was just totally impressed with the depth of uh, Tom's research. And it took him 10 years. But I also was so curious about the attribution that I read the footnotes as I'm reading along. And the footnotes to me were even more interesting because it shows how Tom had to go searching for things. And then some of it was just fell into his lap, like the University of Hawaii, um, the, the, the Yoshida papers that were tucked away in a little box. But, you know, the other thing is those guys back in those days wrote things down and they kept it. And I remember my dad was the same way. He kept everything. I don't know if we do that today because everything is on digital form, and I'm just wondering, gosh, if this were to happen today, would we be able to recreate something 80 years hence to correct an injustice with materials that we have today? I don't know because there's so much misinformation. I mean, there was misinformation back then too, but the misinformation today is is digital. It's, uh, it's very hard to correct things today. So... Um, my hat's off to Tom for finding everything and pulling it all together and then sticking with it for 10 years. Yes. What a priceless find, Tom. And it was, I felt your joy, <laughs> you know, to know that you had discovered mm. this to set you on this path. It was just that moment. It was quite a buzz. And actually, I was always energized by going back to it. And uh, I should, while we're on the subject, credit my mentor, co-worker, guide in this in many ways was Ted, the now late Ted Tsukiyama. Yes. Ted passed away two years ago. But Ted went with me to the archives and would, in essence, interpret for me things that didn't quite make sense or names that I did not recognize and he recognized and he gave them meaning. And I'm forever indebted to Ted for that help. And mahalo, Ted Tsukiyama. That was Tom Kaufman and Barbara Tanabe talking about Tom's new book. Uh, it's entitled uh, Inclusion, How Hawaii Protected Japanese Americans from Mass Internment, Transformed Itself, and Changed America. That is it for us today. Do you have an internment story to share with us? Maybe about Sand Island or Hona Uli Uli? 
Color Talkback Line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? Well, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. And I would be remiss because today is Valentine's Day. Did you know that the conversation has been on the air for 11th year? We celebrate our anniversary. Love the show? Be our Valentine. Be a member. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow for more of the conversation. 